0: Welcome one and all once again to Pros and Cons, a river-do's and river-don'ts podcast where we review Nicole Ostow's tie-in Riverdale Young Adult Fiction Prose Novels. I'm Rob. I'm Quinn. And I'm just gonna let you know for free at the start of this one that you may have paid for your whole seat, but you're only going to need the edge because things get just somehow even weirder than they were last time in this section we're, we're doing chapters six seven and eight which rounds out book one the party and I just as I was saying before the mics were on reading it doesn't help you make more sense of it it makes it worse
1: yeah no this whole thing is labyrinthine
0: I'm not gonna lie to the audience or to you Quinn and say that I'm not deeply entertained and super invested but it's it's so incomprehensible. Yes. A- absolutely yes. It's, it's just suspense. But it's metatextual suspense. I'm not into it because of the cool stuff that's happening or the good themes or character work or something like that. I'm into this and excited by it because it's a juggling act. And they just yeah. keep throwing more things into the air. And here's the thing the first ball or chainsaw or burning torch or whatever hasn't come down yet. We don't know if they can even juggle at all. They're just throwing things in the air, and there are so many things up there now.
1: There's so many things in the air right now, and it's almost scattershot the way that the book has been propelling us
0: forward at this point. Oh, yeah, the through line is, like, utterly magpied at this point. Like, anytime there's just a thing maybe referenced or happened. Ah, fuck it. Let's write about that for a while instead of whatever we were doing a second ago. I don't remember. And I'm very interested once we reach the end
1: of this section here, once we reach the end of uh, chapter 8, to talk a little bit about some structural stuff.
0: Oh, yes. That is going to be a lovely thing to talk about. But in order to reach the end of chapter 8, we have to get through 6, 7, and 8, which means it's probably time for us to go through the play-by-play, get out our little crime scene magnifying glasses, and try to figure out who murdered this book.
1: We open chapter six with a veritable calling card of Nicole Ostow's literary crimes. Let's talk about it. That's right. It's several texts.
0: Chapter six, text messages. We don't know whose chapter it is yet, because that's how we roll in this book. Ethel. Texts Dilton Doily claiming, quote, Something heavy is in the air, and is generally paranoid about vague nothing. Dilton says chill in the bunker, and Ben will be by soon. We then cut to Penny Peabody, I should say Penny PP Peabody, who is contacted by Hiram about whatever plan or machinations are in store with Sweet Pea. Hiram is involved, apparently. Let's not discount that
1: they might be pulling... For a twist, that that HL could be Hermione Lodge instead. You're right. It's I, not, but it could be. It
0: could, but be. it's not.
1: It's not, but it could
0: al- be. It's Hiram, but it's not. It wasn't. <laughs> You're right. It is just HL. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, <laughs> like I don't think that I've ever heard Hermione Lodge refer to Archie as the boy. <laughs> Seems a little Hiram-esque, doesn't it? Uh, Anyway, Penny Peabody assures her mysterious texting messaging partner uh, that the cat's paw can be managed. That initial setbacks are not terminal setbacks. Then we get Sweet Pea texting Tony Topaz, of all people, wishing she was there to help with apparently some drama that's brewing with the ghoulies. Ah, man, remember the ghoulies? (laughs)
1: At this point, I'm so tired of ghoulie promises, Rob. They never pay off.
0: God, that's true. That's one of the most consistent themes in Riverdale and Riverdale-adjacent media, is that the ghoulies are informed awesome. We hear about stuff and things are inferred that are way cooler than what we ever actually get. And it's a real shame. It sucks. I'm still not over the hearses, and never will be. No. But Tony's not super interested in, like, Sweet Pea's plight and... Goes on to explain why. The reason she doesn't really care what happens to Sweet Pea is because her girlfriend's best friend is Josie McCoy. And. Wait. Wait a second. Why would Cheryl, or by extension Tony, be mad about Sweet Pea hooking up with Josie? There's surely... This book is not meaning to suggest that we're to take Reggie's bullshit from last time as being an actual real thing, where he and Josie actually are a couple just because he's convinced that she has the hots for it. What the fuck? What I is have no what idea. is this? I don't know. Why bro. I don't know is Tony not happy with Sweet Pea about about like hooking up with Josie. It makes. No sense at all. It's not like she's like, oh, I don't approve of Josie. She's a rich, privileged girl, whatever. Like, it's her girlfriend's best friend. And the fact that it's her girlfriend's best friend is what she says is the problem. Are we to understand that Sweet Pea's dick is simply a an object of pure evil? Like, like you shouldn't hook up with people that I like because you got that lich phylactery for a dong? Maybe. Maybe it's just a corrupting force. I don't. It does, like this. Am I missing anything, Quinn? This seems to literally make no
1: sense. Like, unless that was supposed to be read as like a joking repartee, like, "Oh, I'll bet you
0: do." But she's like, you know, need I remind you? I know that you're hooking up with Josie,
1: like right, in a exactly. reproachful
0: way. But but why? Do, why is that bad? I don't understand. And, and yeah, they entertain anything. This long is up. worse than season two, where they're like, "Cruising is bad," and like, I mean. Because at least then it's like, well, maybe, yeah, cruising's probably fine, but, like, maybe not while well, there's a puritanical murderer running around killing three people a day or whatever. Right. But, like, this is this is even more just, like, this romantic thing is bad for reasons.
1: It's baffling, yeah.
0: I don't know what the hell this text conversation even was. I, I'm super baffled by it, but... We leave the text messages behind and proceed on to Archie's point of view, which by the length of my notes here must not have anything in it. Um, Oh, no, it doesn't. Okay, yeah, just checking.
1: It's uh, three and a half pages.
0: Archie and Veronica leave the party, and the driver nearly runs down Ethel Muggs, who's jumped into the path of the fucking limousine. Veronica asks Ethel if she is auditioning for a part in, and I quote, Scream 5000. Which... What? What? What is... What is is this? Quinn, what is this? She says, what are these words? Scream 5000. Scream, as a film franchise, has only four films. And Scream 5000 is all written out. There are no numerals. It's Scream, F-I-V-E-T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D. All written out. No numerals. So it... Both doesn't make sense as a horror franchise to single out and roast for having too many entries as it is a relatively low, like if it's truly a franchise, like most franchises have more than that. Yeah. Um, and also it's not consistent with how Scream writes out its titles. So Scream 5000, by the way, if you just Google it, there are no relevant Google results. Not one. Wow. It, it isn't real. I don't know. I don't know. Like, I like. I have no idea what Scream 5000 is, but we can at least infer one thing, which is that apparently wandering the road in the middle of the night with dark circles beneath one's eyes is something like an audition for it. So we can understand that Scream 5000 is something that involves walking around on a road in the middle of the night looking tired. I, uh, uh, yeah. 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 Um, it's weird. Um,
1: It's really weird. It's very weird.
0: And then, there's another, like, it's a little more subtle, it's like less anvilicious in how fucking weird it is, but earlier in this very chapter, in the text messages, we see that she, Ethel, is very paranoid and worried about stuff. And then she just fucking tells Veronica who she's looking for, Dilton and Ben, and... Tells them he's watching in an ominous manner. Way to keep a low profile, Ethel. For someone who's really paranoid and worried about stuff, just just blabbing to randos in cars. Yeah, she's bad at this. It's really shocking. Like, okay, she was maybe more justified in not being super low profile at the party because she was literally looking for her companions there at that location and was surprised they weren't there. Right but this is just hello random person i'm going to tell you stuff which is not consistent with being worried about being watched and worried about something bad about to happen just and 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 we see later on not to spoil but like we see that she's very wary of outsiders too like she's very like distrustful and like careful about who gets to learn about what's going on mhm and like so this is just This is baffling. It's just, hey, I'm going to tell you some stuff to make some eerie atmosphere. Bye-bye. It's really strange. And then her paranoia is
1: apparently infectious because now Archie has a bunch of doubts about her safety. Like, I, I think it would be concerning to encounter someone who's in that state, right? But, like, the way he ends that, like, she will be, I said, I sounded way more confident
0: than I felt. I had literally no reason to believe that except for blind faith. Yeah, he he angsts internally for, like, a page, or half a page, anyway, about the trial, and, like, he's just, like, all of a sudden deeply negative.
1: <laughs> right, and, like, I thought for now most of, like, the big-scale shit in Riverdale had calmed down. So the Black Hood isn't exactly gunning for her, you know?
0: No, he's in jail.
1: It's very confusing. And this chapter, just as a thing, is very strange. Like, let's devote six pages or whatever to nothing like nothing light repartee and a small encounter with ethel mugs
0: that doesn't lead to anything no no and that's that's it for the chapter like yeah like really not only does very little happen it seems a lot like none of it can be i don't know how this is gonna go but we'll give it a shot now the dog upstairs is barking, and he's getting mad. No. Oh my god. This did not help. No, it did not. Holy shit, buddy. I will just be meta about it. I think so. Now, after a in-studio interruption that will be largely edited out, uh, I am back. This time with a very distressed Shiba Inu in my lap. Uh, I am giving him hugs to try to convince him that no one is going to come here and and kill us because there was a maintenance person in our yard very close to our house and it was just horrible. It was just just terrifying on every level Um, and there was a lot of dog noise. Uh, along with that. So sorry about that. I think we're getting to chapter seven.
1: Yes, we are. Chapter
0: seven, Betty? Yep. Nothing happened in chapter six. It's just, hey, here's some spooky atmosphere not connected to the plot of this book as far as we can tell. Like this whole Gargoyle King, Ethel Ben Dilton thing is just, like I said, I will eat my hat if it's not just the plot of season three being like retroactively teased. Just very bizarre literary technique. yes, Betty opens up chapter 7. No text messages this time, no bullshit, straight into a character. Betty worries about Veronica having seen her pill bottle and laments about how shitty she feels from the constant Adderall abuse in service of all work and no play regarding Archie's trial. Yep. During this... Now it's probably worth noting that this is a very incriminating monologue that she's writing down in her diary.
1: And again, <laughs> having now confirmed that this is Adderall that she's on, per our last conversation, there's no way that this could happen unless there. Oh no, is and it
0: gets and it gets better. Gross negligence happening across the board. I mean, it gets so much better in my opinion in this because she specifies that there isn't even a real therapist. She forges prescriptions from a therapist that doesn't exist. Which somehow makes the whole thing even less believable. It's not that there's a real therapist that she's forging prescriptions from. She has invented a fictional therapist.
1: Yep, it's fucking weird.
0: Also, she says, and I quote, I don't know how I've been getting away with it, but I have. (laughs) Which I think is like, wow, that's... I... Weirdly self-aware for the book, but also it's like it's not even. We're not even saying that Betty's a criminal mastermind. There's just some unthinkable, farcical level of incompetence somewhere down just, down the line. She just keeps pulling it off. Imagine this level of incompetence that allows a fictional person to prescribed controlled medication. That is what we are being asked to believe in this book. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Betty comes to her senses which by the way her being in her head about these things and worrying about this stuff and her realizing oh wait I'm in a I'm in a car with my friends or maybe maybe not maybe driving a bike I don't I don't remember the specific vehicle but like both her being really worried about the medicine situation and her coming out of her reverie and realizing that she's in this situation in the present are things that she writes in her journal. Like, yeah. These are in a diary entry, which again, it's like, it says, Dear Diary, but it's just a stream of consciousness. It's this is not how diaries work. I
1: hate it so much. It just,
0: yeah. This formatting is a thrill a minute. She writes, like, about what she's zoning out about and writes about coming out of her zoning out and what's going on then. And it's like John Doe from Seven just writing down every single thing that happens and they think about for the whole day.
1: And there is literally one advantage that I see being present in this use of format, and I don't think it's worth it, and that's the underlining.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's honestly, the underlining's way calmed down from last time. It's not even that noteworthy this time. I do really love that she said Westworld-esque, and underlining. Westworld. Oh, we'll get to that fucking shit. Okay. Um, But hey, you know, the upside is that, If she's acting like John Doe from Seven, it's like an accidental serial killer reference, which is kind of neat. And yeah, there are these references to both Westworld and the MCU in this section, which I feel like maybe Austaus run out of like references I think Riverdale kids would use, which are always like, you know, 30 years out of date at least. (laughs) Uh, Because like that's like literally if you want to be accurate to Riverdale, the the references do need to be incredibly stale. Yeah,
1: like when was the last time
0: someone mentioned Truman Capote? Right, Exactly. Uh, I think that Ostau has now resorted to stuff I've seen recently. Something that the kids would like. Westworld and fucking Thanos or whatever. What are you doing over there, Betty? Is your head up in that Fortnite again? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Basically. I think that's where we're going at this point. Uh, Betty continues to do some paranoid inner monologuing while the main four meet up at Pops and order food. And Veronica tells them about the weird run in that they just had last chapter with Ethel Muggs. Yeah. And it comes up in there that Ethel was looking for Ben and Dilton. So, like, the fact that, man, the fact that this D list character is looking for this other D list and other F list character just keeps being said over and over and over in this book. Right.
1: Also, if Betty is slamming Adderall as much as she seems to be, and again, there's a lot of questions here about. Stuff Like, and I can only speak to someone for whom Ad- Adderall works on. mm mm-hmm. uh, So I can't speak to, like, you know, what abusing it feels like because it works with my biology in a way that is helpful to me. Um, But she's, she's listing off all these symptoms like, oh, I feel dizzy all the time. I feel like shit, like my stomach is going off. It's like, okay, well, that all sounds bad. And then she orders coffee. She orders decaf. But I can tell you as someone who is on Adderall. And someone who drinks coffee, there's still caffeine in decaffeinated coffee. Yes, yeah, just merely less. And if you are as fucked up as she seems to be right now.
0: <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's a real she's bad. She's in for a
1: shit show. She's either going to full out explode into the jitters, she's going to shit her pants, or she's oh, yes. going to faint the next time she stands up.
0: She's also really risking like serious heart damage. Yeah. It's pretty pretty terrible. <laughs> Um, but we get into something that I, I can't, I, I can't even believe it. I love this so much and it's so bad. Pop, Pop fucking Tate, who was clearly eavesdropping on these children, just slides right into the conversation and lets everyone know that Dilton was at the chocolate shop earlier tonight mm-hmm. with, quote, that boy you worked with at the Twilight. Okay. We have to go moment by moment here in my reading experience to even convey what I felt here. When Pop Tate said, that boy you worked with at the Twilight, I was like 100% sure that he didn't know Ben's name and that he was assuming Jughead would know who he was talking about because he worked with him. Right. Nope. Ben is still there. And Pop is just fucking talking about him to the other kids when he's in the same room! He even points at him!
1: It has very- Pop Tate, hey, where are your goddamn manner It has enormous shut up 5 a
0: is speaking energy. <laughs> it's- Like, not only is Pop listening to the main force conversation, just, just total eavesdropper on these kids- He then talks to them about another kid who is there in the room with them. It's so fucking rude. It's wild. (laughs) Jesus Christ, Pop Day, don't be that bitch. I can't believe he did that. (laughs) Shut up, Ben. The main
1: characters are here.
0: Yeah. And it gets better. Pop then lets them know what snippets of a hushed and clearly secret conversation he managed to consciously overhear between Dalton and Ben earlier, (laughs) alluding to gargoyles and kings. Jughead speculates that it's Dungeons and Dragons, but Pop reiterates that there was an emphasis on gargoyles in the secret conversation. There's some gargoyles in here. In this universe apparently precludes Dungeons and Dragons. Important note. Gargoyles are in at least the three most recent editions of D&D, if not more than that. Yeah. I would have spent more time Googling it, but D&D sucks. And I wanted to get back to Riverdale tie-in novels, which somehow, somehow suck less.
1: (laughs) I I don't know. Like, I don't trust any of these characters to know a bunch of shit about Dungeons & Dragons lore,
0: but... I mean, at the very least, like... Dilton would have to be playing an edition of D d that didn't have gargoyles in it, which is like second edition at the I don't even know maybe there maybe literally isn't there an edition there might not be gargoyles. a
1: gargoyleless edition.
0: there may not be, but I, I was able to see three three point5 four and five all have gargoyles in some form. So uh so not only would he have to be playing like an at this point relatively obscure edition of the game, Pop Tate would have to know that piece of trivia that I couldn't well, even, like, find on Google. And what I really like is like, actually... Like, at least not in five minutes. So he he has deep knowledge of each edition of Dungeons & Dragons. He
1: might. Or, I like the assumption instead that he assumes that they're talking about one of the many heartbreaker knockoffs of Dungeons and & Dragons. And so, it's like, no, 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 no. This is like... This isn't Tunnels and Trolls. It's not Dungeons and Dragons.
0: It's Griffins and Gargoyles. Yeah, there's a gargoyle in it somewhere. Which we kind of know from previous text in this very book is a wrong assumption on Pop's part because they just call it The Game. They don't use, even if there is a name to the role-playing game and even if that has gargoyles in it, internally they don't talk to each other about it using its title. They say The Game.
1: Bro, I've tried to talk to people online about games.
0: And people talk about Dungeons and Dragons like that. So, like, they wouldn't be saying, like, Griffins and Gargoyles or whatever it is. Right, they would be, like, the game. Yeah, we've already established it. So it's just, this is a tangle of fucking weirdness. But I I can't even get over how Pop Tate just listens in on every conversation in his restaurant shamelessly and just tells other customers about, like, how long does it take for that to go around and come around, dude? I get the sense that Pop Tate's probably deeply
1: unfortunately lonely and like this is what he has i just feel like he's really begging
0: for his customers to get super mad at him
1: (laughs) like i don't own the place anymore it's like what are you gonna do not come to the one diner in town it's now like now what are you gonna do complain to veronica i tell her all the gossip fuck you (laughs) you're right you want to go eat out of the trash or you want to eat pops
0: (laughs) that's right those are the options
1: now get the fuck out of (laughs) here oh jesus christ it's just that simple okay
0: we then go to text messages uh late text messages after real character stuff this time interestingly more useless shit that just oh, yeah. builds on again I again it assume... has to just be season three yeah. like that's all that this can possibly be polly's trying to get betty to come for edgar ever never's new moon ceremony which she nopes right out of and fakes her phone dying. So then we get Alice and Polly texting to tell each other about the thing we just read. Hi. And Alice lamenting that she can't track Betty's phone anymore, emphasizing the need to try harder next time to get Betty into the fucking call. I do love the balls. Like, the, the Austow energy of, like, let's have a text message conversation and then have another text message conversation where the content of the first text message conversation is related to a third party. It's real good. It's
1: so deeply unnecessary. Like, if it comes up later, <laughs> you could simply have Alice say, oh, Betty shut her phone off or whatever. You don't need to do this exchange here. That just, like, is so weird.
0: It's so weird. It is incredibly fucking weird. <laughs> I love it, though. Uh, this is what I'm here for in these novels, is seeing the blatant, stupid ways that the pages just get eaten up. Just, just chewed and spat out. I mean, I envy that. I wish I could just churn content like that. It's nothing, but it exists. Hey, if she got paid for this, she's a legitimate magician, right? Uh, we then go to the thing that I fucking screamed about last time, and I didn't even know how right I was. It's the pop Tate section. Gotta start my
1: Lamaze breathing to get through the pain.
0: Yeah, no, this is. This is amazing. There's a lot of bad stuff, but there's some real good stuff if you look close enough, too. Um, So feel free to jump in with your observations whenever. We begin with Pop internally rhapsodizing about how Jughead is trying to make sense of Riverdale's dark history. And Pop laments that it's the wrong way of thinking to imagine that it can be understood fully. And this is just... This is a nice little second beat here of older generation characters alluding to something truly Lovecraftian in Riverdale's truly. history, because Alice did this earlier. I cannot
1: wait for the fucking fishmen to crawl out of the Sweetwater River or something. We want to rape. We're rape fish. Oh, yeah. No, you didn't have to make Ms. it about is so, so
0: scary. We were written by a sad racist man. <laughs> <sighs> Uh. Yeah.
1: So they definitely are pointing toward this weird extra dark underbelly. And you
0: know it's nothing. You know it's bullshit. But it's so like It's so exciting. Uh counter argument. What if it's the Gargoyle King? I mean, the Gargoyle King as some eternal figure? Like there's literally just a pennywise yeah. living at living at riverdale it's the gargoyle king i'm i'm down i'm down there's a reason that i'm mentioning pennywise here there's a very specific reason quinn do you know what it is is it cuz there's more kinga coming oh yes oh yes there is pop just goes and fucking does it he casually drops into the internal monologue that his father claimed to have and i goddamn quote a little bit of the shine shine in quotes the ability to see beyond the mere physical realm this is not a drill folks the stephen king dark tower multiverse is canon in riverdale now and (laughs) the entire bibliography of stephen king and hp lovecraft are both canon in riverdale And I had to consciously stop myself from hyperventilating as I read this. In truth, I still have not fully recovered.
1: This is also, unfortunately, however, where she stumbles right into turning magical tape. And I say this as a white person, so this is uh, like a white person's understanding of the race dynamics here. But I think that if I'm noticing that as a white person, it maybe signals... That it's, it's worse? well,
0: what 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 uh, what, is, what occurred to me is like, she's like, oh, this is an older black gentleman in proximity of food, so I guess he's a lot like Dick Halloran. So let's just make him Dick Halloran from The Shining. Could be, could be. like, but yeah, it, it, it yeah, it just it seems very super reductive, doesn't? Treading it? on some
1: <laughs> real problematic race stuff here, yeah, yeah. Uh, I do think that the next paragraph that follows this, however, is that kind of sweet nonsense, that if you viewed it in a vacuum without the context of Riverdale, you would look at someone and say, what the fuck are you talking about?
0: He recites a litany of bad shit from Riverdale's past, most of which we know, but he also mentions an abnormal number of unexplained drownings. <laughs> yep which i believe is new i don't think that's from the show or the book i don't recall that but so we're just we're just dropping in like oh yeah tons of people drown tons of people drown and and uh and and that was mentioned as separate from sweetie the uh sweetwater river cryptid so it's not that sweetie is eating people it's that there is some sort of drowning situation happening here which may be riverdale's very own pennywise uh the thing that they are alluding to these older folks i don't know but Damn. Anyway, he goes on to say that he would do anything to protect the kids of Riverdale. But there's nothing he can do for Archie Andrews now that the darkness has claimed him for itself.
1: And again, more people just being like, that Archie boy is the goldenest, most perfectest boy that ever lived. But now he is damned. Now he is damned. Like, did you not pay attention to the red circle thing? Like, I I don't know. No one's been paying attention to Archie. Everyone decided who Archie was when he was, like, six years old. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's the way it goes in small towns. I don't know.
0: I don't know. It is very bizarre, but Hot Damn it was a section of Trip. It too pages. We canonized all of Stephen King's work and hinted at this, like, deep Lovecraftian truth, cosmic horror revelation at the heart of Riverdale. And we suggested that this sadly pretty Magical Negro character at this point has decided... In, you know, his magical wisdom that Archie is cursed beyond all hope of redemption. Like, that is something we do in, like, a couple pages. It's literally two pages.
1: Maybe just a squeak them over that.
0: It is a fucking ride.
1: <laughs> the drownings, Rob.
0: Oh, all those drownings. Holy shit. Yeah. Um, so, chapter eight. Chapter eight. Text messages. FP text Jughead asking if... Penny Peabody has contacted him. Jughead says no. FP says that's good. Refuse any requests she may have of you. And please tell me if she does get in contact with you. I mean, yes, FP. She tried to get Jughead killed at the end of season two, so I don't think he's going to be like, Hey, Penny, you're my friend. I'm going to do stuff for you. Need, Need any crimes doing? Shogoth boxes need to be delivered. It doesn't, you know, we can't have our petty differences about that. It needs to get done. Uh-huh. One point here about the text
1: messages is maybe it's just the the FP remarks are quite short, but I do feel like she's able to capture the character voice relatively well, but it also seems like it's just through using a couple real quick easy shortcuts, like calling him jug and boy and son. Mhm. And I'm like, "Oh, sounds enough like FP.
0: I can I can hear that in his voice in my head. Probably again because the actor portraying FP Jones is absolutely wasted on the material. <laughs>
1: oh yeah, oh yeah. He's so good. He's so good. yeah. He's
0: he is so much better than than this show then needs or deserves. I can or hear knows him acting through this text. Yeah, I know. Making it better. <laughs> he's the best. Uh, so then we switch to Jughead for narration. Jughead notes. That he hasn't been an adventure scout, quote, since the days of Little Archie and Little League. And excuse me, what?
1: Rest in peace, (laughs) Little Archie. Little
0: Archie has initial capitals, like it's an actual specific thing, like Little League. What the fuck is Little Archie? It's the other Archie, the one who died. (laughs) Just, Just... So is this just... His friend Archie Andrews, but several years ago? Why the caps? Why was Archie Andrews an official institution named for his smallness? What is happening?
1: I have no idea. I have no idea. I can't fathom what's going on here.
0: Like, is Little Archie a line of comics that happened that Jughead <laughs> is referencing inside of an Archie story? I, don't I know. I. I it, it, Anyway, we're, we're never going to get out of that maze, so we just have to bowl our way through. Um, Veronica gets all doomy and gloomy about the upcoming trial, and Archie compliments all of his friends on how hard they tried. In response to this praise, Jughead compares himself clumsily to a king, quote, a gargoyle king, if you will, which causes Ben to spill his milkshake, but this is important, does not cause Ben to truly enter the scene or do anything or lead to more information about the most interesting thing that has been in this book so far. No. Gotta save that for season
1: three. Also very strange because none of them know about the gargoyle king of it all. They know that there's nope, gargoyles. No, it's true. But they don't know yep. about the gargoyle
0: king. Well, gargoyles and kings is what was said. So Jughead is really just, just remixing stuff in a serendipitous way. And then... God, this book is stupid. Betty has an amazing follow-up here that just,
1: honestly, I agree with her as much as it is some satanic panic bullshit.
0: (laughs) Okay, yeah. Betty says she doesn't like the idea of Dilton getting heavy into a role-playing game with dark undertones. We have to pump the brakes here, (laughs) though. Because, Betty, what aren't you sharing with the class? In this very scene... We established that nobody knows what Dilton is up to. And now you're saying he's into a role-playing game with dark undertones. A specific description of this role-playing game that requires you both to know that it exists, and something about what it's like. Right. We we just said, is it d and D? I don't know, maybe it's not D&D. And now she knows specifically that it is a game that has dark undertones.
1: Last we, I knew, no, never mind, that was Veronica, damn it. Damn we it.
0: just obviously accidentally pulled season three information that the characters just discussed how they didn't have yeah. this information into dialogue and just fucking left it
1: there. There's a lot of leaps to get to the point where you say something like that because, again, like if they know it's a role-playing game or if they're presuming that it's a role-playing game, like the Dark Undertones, where does that come
0: from? Because
1: they season three, gargoyles? Quinn. Yeah, it's got to be season three stuff. It's just season this three. This really
0: makes me super, even more optimistic about the chances of a satanic panic storyline in season three, uh-huh. because I think that what happened is that's really what happens in the show, and and Ostow just accidentally had the characters know information that l- it's not only that it's it'd be par for the course if they knew information that is really from season three, but like. The fact that they suddenly magically know information from season three that they just talked about not knowing is fucking magnificent. It's wild. Uh, I will also pause it. What if it's not just
1: season three stuff accidentally licking through? What if it's time ghosts?
0: Fuck. No. No. They have
1: to do it right this time, Rob. <laughs>
0: If you know, you know. If you know, let's move on. You know. (laughs) Betty goes from zero to one hundred exceptionally quickly on not accepting defeat, and comes up with the idea to go to Shadow Lake in search of evidence, which I'm pretty sure that murder suspects are not allowed to do during a trial in progress. I don't know. It's probably illegal. Uh, Nobody seems to see any problem with it though, and the main four decide to go off to Shadow Lake. So the murder suspect and his friends are going to go investigate the crime scene in the middle of the trial. (laughs) Ah. Ethel! We get some Ethel perspective, which you always know is going to be a fun time. Ethel is doing a bit of the old bunker hunker, waiting for Dilton after a just sort of brief bout of filibustering about sacred spaces. And how separate from the rest of the world, quote, those who would ascend to the kingdom, capital K, are. She changes clothes. But, oh, gentle readers, it's not just into PJ pants like you or I would do. She removes her, quote, pedestrian street clothes and shrugs on, quote, Princess Ethelene's ethereal robe.
1: I can't. I can't. I can't. I can't. I... (laughs) And, like princess ethylene that's such a bad name it's such an obvious self-insert name and i get it if like it's your first time playing a role-playing game maybe especially if you're younger but these kids are getting older to where most of the time most of the people that i've played with at least around this age range and who i have played with they usually go for um something a little more topical i guess Like, if it's gonna be, like, a weird name... First time name, you're gonna get Ethelene, but you're also probably gonna get
0: somebody playing a, like, gladiator named Farticus. That's
1: a little bit what I mean. Like, yeah, or Vapotron.
0: Oh, shit. Princess Ethelene's ethereal robe. Okay,
1: we have to move on. I do want to slow down and say that they do have a name for this magical realm of griffins and gargoyles. And that's Eldervare. Oh, yes. How dare I forget. And... I don't know, this paragraph, this one-sentence paragraph, shot me in the fucking brain. It, like, it made me dizzy. Choose your avatar.
0: I just have to read the purely expository introduction to the game that she sort of just thinks really hard at the reading audience. Because it is so fucking wild that I can't... There's no point in making notes on it, because you just have to make notes by writing the whole thing down. Rob?
1: We have way too much going on, each of us in our lives. But the devil who lives in my heart says, What if we tried to look at the information that this book provides us about this role playing game?
0: And ostensibly season three.
1: Right. Ostensibly season three. But what if even just looking at what's here in this book, what if we tried to design that game? <sighs> we can't do it. We don't have time.
0: No, we don't we have don't. time. And it would but... not
1: pay us any money. No, it wouldn't. But, oh god. But, like... No, I get you. This half page paints such a picture that I can't... It does, doesn't it? It, It's a very vivid picture from someone who clearly has never played this kind of game before. Never played an
0: RPG. Not once. Not once in her life. The first game is a player's point of entry. The portal to a realm of griffins and gargoyles. To the magical kingdom of Eldervare. Choose your avatar. Radiant Knight, Arcane Invoker, Hellcaster.
1: The three kinds of posters on Twitter.com?
0: Yeah. We've chosen already, we three. The princess, she is mine. Ben chose Hellcaster. We were meant to ascend together, but there have been whispers lately. He and Dilton, do they have plans of their own? So, okay, I have to get into this. There is some There is some commentary that is necessary at this point. Who is Dilton playing, first off? I assume that he was the DM. Maybe. Maybe, but yeah, we didn't we didn't get to hear if he made a character selection. Why is the princess a thing? If it was a choice but Ethel took it, like the princess was a character but Ethel has dibs on it. That means that the choose your avatar thing was literally addressed to someone who would potentially play the game. But then Hellcaster is mentioned in that litany, and Ben already chose it. That's what threw me. I'm like. So is Princess a unique avatar that only one player can have, but there can be as many Hellcasters as people want? What is this game? Is it an incomplete list? I don't is know. Is she sandbagging? Are there better characters that she's not mentioning? She doesn't
1: want you to play a fucking princess. She doesn't want you to play, like, the Archduke. Because they're OP. Uh, or the sex haver. Oh, God forbid.
0: <laughs> but uh, so so that's the the uniqueness or non-uniqueness of character types, along with who she's supposed to be talking to here, along with is the princess an actual character? Ta- like, it's absolutely baffling. And it doesn't even matter that Ostau's not played D&D or whatever. Like, it's internally incoherent. Yeah, it, it is internally very incoherent. So then she fans out quest cards and fills chalices with blue fresh-aid, off-brand Kool-Aid. What is this game?
1: I, I frankly love the contrast between fresh-aid,
0: blue, of course, and chalices. It's amazing. So far, what we have, the best of my understanding is a mix of a very ignorant old person's idea of Dungeons & Dragons, mixed with the Tarot and Jonestown. Yeah, pretty much. I am fucking transported. This is the best thing I've ever read in my life.
1: Oh, God, I can't.
0: It's so much to take in. I'm so excited about season three from this. What the fuck is happening? Who is she talking to? How does this game work? I care about this so much more than I do about Shadow Lake.
1: So, so much more. (laughs) Speaking of Shadow Lake.
0: Yeah, let's talk about... We're at the end of a section here. We have finished up book one, The Party. We're moving on to book two, Shadow Lake. And so I think it is time to have a little bit of structural criticism. (laughs) Take it away, Quinn. I mean,
1: having read this far into the book and having them sort of just decide on pursuing the central thing that this book is supposed to be about. I'm left questioning why I read the last eight chapters. Um, You could have gotten the pieces in place with probably just a prologue, and if you were going to go, like, a little bit long, maybe two or three chapters?
0: Well, yeah, you could easily have had the Jughead prologue that sets up all the required knowledge from the seasons one and two of Riverdale, and then had the first legitimate scene... Who cares what perspective it's from? Have the first scene be the main four meeting in Pop's chocolate shop. The party was a fucking waste of time. Unless we get payoff from, like, the Sweet Pea stuff, the Josie stuff, and Venom Watch 2020. Hashtag Venom Watch 2020. Ooh, oh, yeah. Woo! Woo! Yeah, thank you. Uh, if we get something out of that, maybe it's okay that we wasted literally a third of the book on nothing, but, like, I don't have very high hopes... It's like, really, we just wasted a bunch of time at this party that didn't matter, and we got a cavalcade of wild-ass shit from Ethel that can't actually come to fruition until the actual show. And, and like, a third I, in, we are now actually starting the plot of the book, I think. I suspect. There's still I plenty so. of time I, to not do that, by the way.
1: I hope so. And I gotta say, my will is getting so weak, Rob. I gotta know what's up with this gargoyle king shit. <laughs>
0: We have to get through this fucking book so that we can watch the show. It's so important. So we have blown a third of the book on literally nothing, probably. Uh, But we have raised some intriguing questions that I have no faith in the book answering. Right. And there's just, there's
1: no way that if there was some necessary setup that happened here, that it needed to take place over this many fucking chapters.
0: Unbelievable. It's, again, it's, it's juggling. It's a complex juggling act, but you throw each thing into the air with such force that it's going to be a long time before it comes back down. See, like, everybody's in their seats and all the tickets are paid for before there's any evidence that you can actually juggle. I, yeah, it's insane. It's, it's insane. I'm so excited. We're going to get into it next time when we return and go to Shadow Lake and see if we can discover some plot for the book there. Join us next time, fellow investigators. gonna make this happen.
1: Get those chalices of fresh-aid ready. You're gonna need them.
0: That's right. Presumably some fucking rat poison or something in at least one chalice. That, that, I, I, mmm. Yeah. Um, for River News and River Doubts, by way of pros and cons, I've been Rob. I've been Quinn. And Jesus Christ, this book. Good, goodbye. (laughs)